could be a part of um, in the life of our church. Uh, good to see everybody. Good morning. Are you guys alive, caffeinated? That was weak, but whatever. Um, Daniel chapter 7, if you have a Bible. Um, if you are new, we are in a series called Citizens and Exiles, and uh, we, really we started off the year in the book of Daniel talking about what it looks like to have allegiance to Jesus, have allegiance to God in a world that um, it just really isn't all that into it. And, and, and to be honest with you, it's just been a wild journey for us. Um, we're looking at the book of Daniel because Daniel paints a picture, the story of Daniel paints a picture of what it looks like to, uh, to live in exile faithfully connected to God. And in a whole different culture, in a whole different way of thinking, um, Daniel shows us, at least the first half of Daniel shows us like a glimpse, a picture of what it looks like to, to not participate in certain things and to uh, push back on certain things. And um, so this morning, we're actually going to dig into the second part of Daniel, which is uh, apocalyptic literature. So some of you sci-fi people, and you know, this is... <laughs> This is some interesting Bible literature. And sometimes when people get to this part of scripture, they're like, mm, this is weird. I'm just gonna blow through this. But we're gonna take some time in Daniel 7. And uh, there's two parts, like I said, the first part of Daniel is Daniel's life in exile. The second part of Daniel is a picture of what life after exile will look like. And so um, you guys ready for this? Daniel 7. So first part of this is us walking through Daniel 7. Second part of it is kind of the implications of it. So um, for those of you who are familiar with like prophecy stuff, um, maybe any left behind kind of people in the room, um, this, <laughs> this is, um, um, I'm not a left behind kind of person. So um, just as we gump, jump into this, uh, just want you to understand that if you turn prophecy into speculation about the future only, you actually miss out on what prophecy is trying to tell us about right now. See, prophecy isn't all about the future. Prophecy is actually opening our eyes to what's happening in the moment. And so uh, keep that in mind as we jump into that. So here we go, first, first verse, Daniel chapter seven. In the first year of Belteshazzar, king of Babylon, so pause really quick. Um, Notice right there, if you've been paying attention to the chronology, uh, that uh, we're already out of chronological order. So this is a flashback to the year 553 BC. It's about a decade earlier than the story we told last week about Daniel in the lion's den. Okay, so this is, this is Daniel recalling a dream uh, that he had a decade earlier before the lion's den thing. Daniel had a dream, it says, and visions passed through his mind, and he was lying in, as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. So if you've been with us since the beginning, uh, chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he didn't know what was going on, and he asked for help interpreting it. Uh, in, in this case, it's Daniel having the dream, and Daniel is actually going to need help interpreting interpreting it too. So in the first dream for Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he sees four statues 
And, and if you remember this whole deal, and those turned out to be four empires, um, Daniel's dream is going to be four beasts that actually symbolize four empires. And so they kind of run parallel to each other. And so I'm going to warn you, this gets pretty weird. This gets super weird. Uh, anybody dream people in here? Yet you remember your dreams? Like, I don't. I wish I did. Uh, and vivid dreams? Vivid? Okay. Right. Well, good for you. Uh, my wife has crazy dreams. It's super fun. So, um, and so Daniel is dreaming in the spirit of God here, and the dream has two parts. Here's the first part. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on, a, on one of its sides, and and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird, and this beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. And after that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful, it had large iron teeth. It, was, it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had, not, it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, this is so weird because he's like thinking in his dream. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which <laughs> came up among them, and the three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. All right, how we doing? <laughs> so weird. Crazy stuff happening here. The first thing we see is Daniel, he sees the four winds churning up the great sea. And so what we're seeing is winds coming from all directions and churning up the sea and the sea for uh, those of us who, I mean, if you study ancient Erie's culture, the sea was dark, uh, violent uh, symbol of chaos. Okay. And so Babylonians weren't near the sea. Babylonians were more inland. They were like a Bedouin desert community. And so the sea was terrifying. The sea, an image of the sea is um, is, is symbolic for evil and anarchy and all that is wrong with the world. And so in Babylonian culture, sea was deified as dark, malevolent, a, a dark, malevolent spiritual being. And so then Daniel sees four beasts coming out of the sea, right? So had to be like a nightmare for Daniel. And they were animal-like. They weren't animals. They were animal-like. They were mutant, monster-like animals they were to evoke terror. So in the ancient Near East, this would be terror language um, and imagery uh, that would provo provoke kind of those, those feelings inside. And so what's really important here is that these are all connected to empires. Uh, these are all connected to empires, scholars believe. Empires around the time of Daniel 
Um, and so really on two levels. The first one is that like Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, um, the Greek Empire, and last, the Roman Empire. And what we're seeing is because the, they're Babylonians, the Babylonians are taken over by the Persians, um, and then the Persians are taken over by the Greeks, and then the Greeks are taken over by the Romans, okay? And so this is like a line of succession. He doesn't know this at the time. He's just experienced one transition from Babylon to Persia, okay? So that second beast is this kind of hungry, thirsty animal that has three ribs in his mouth. We believe that's because of Babylon, uh, the Persians captured Babylon, Libya, and Egypt. And so uh, there's that, that image of four different uh, three different ribs in its mouth. Then the, the image of, of the bird, uh, the fast-moving bird, we think is Alexander the Great, who swoops in really quickly and conquers the known rule, world in like a decade, okay? And then um, he divides it up into uh, four different heads or four of his top generals because when he dies, he has no heirs, divides up the kingdom into four parts. Um, and then the last beast is what Dr. Timothy Mackey calls super beast, which is terrifying. And any sci-fi people in the world, it's like this biomechanical kind of creature um, that many believe this signified the Roman Empire uh, because there were 10 horns and we believe that there were 10 emperors from Julius Caesar on. And so all of this is like symbolic of what Daniel is experiencing the beginning of in his life, Okay. But on another level, this is actually significant for us way down the line because it's not like Babylon and Persia and, and you know, all these different places are the only empires to ever exist, right? I mean, from then, we've gotten, you know, past the Romans, we have Ottoman Empire, we have, you know, Genghis Khan, we've got European empires, Nazi Germany, communist Russia, uh, North Korea, all these things. We have empires leading all the way up to the present day. And so on one level, it's about the empires around the time of Daniel. On another level, it's kind of symbolic for empires, right? Empires in our world. Empires that are beastly, that trample the poor, that devour those on the margin, that war against the people of God. And that's kind of how prophecy works, right? It talks about the future, but it also talks about things that we just need to be illuminated to in our present life right now. You with me? So I'm moving really fast. I feel like I'm flying. So uh, prophecy is kind of a signpost to the future, but it's also something that's happening right now. Basically, it's, hey, this is happening and this has happened, okay, is kind of the idea behind it. So these beasts come out of chaos and evil, this dark, malevolent spiritual reality that New Testament calls the Satan, okay, this idea that if you're reading this, um, and you're thinking, man, this isn't a dream. This is a nightmare. You're right. But then there's part two of the dream, and, and we're going to run through that here, verse 9. It says, as I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days, which is another name for God, took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Tens of thousands, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And then it says the court was seated. 
and the books were open. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words that the little horn was speaking. I added the little horn in there. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. So in the second half of the dream, Daniel sees into the throne room of God. And this is really one of the only places I feel like in scripture that it, it likens God to an old man. And, and in this culture, that was like a highly esteemed uh, a thing. You know, we live in a little bit more of an ageist culture that's like, no, young's the best. Um, but he is ancient and wise and unlike any other in the universe. Um, and then it says the courts are seated, the books were open, and that's this, this imagery for judgment. Um, and uh, th- there's this longstanding motif in scripture that there will be a day when God will judge the world forever and set up the kingdom of God. And so this is over the top important right here. It says, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. So Daniel sees deeper into the room, and he sees one, it says, like the son of man, like a son of man, and then in this idea of a clouds, coming on the clouds. And any time in the Old Testament when you, when you see clouds and you picture clouds and there's cloud language, it always means God's presence, meaning, meaning this one like the son of cloud is coming, okay, and he is God's presence, right? And so we see this all the time. In Psalm 68, we see sing to God, sing in praise of his name, extol him who rides on the clouds, Psalm 143, he says, he makes the clouds his chariot and rides on wings of the wind. And then in Nahum 1, it says, his way is in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. So you need to get this. This is really important language. This figure is kind of like a human being, but at the same time, he is an appearing of God. Does that make sense? Human being at the same time, the appearing of God, and does this ring a bell for anybody? Then we read this. He approached the ancient of days, this is the one like the Son of Man, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So unlike Rome and Greece and Medo-Persia and Babylon, this rulership, this kingdom will never, never go away. And now who is the prophecy about? I mean, nine out of 10 answers in church are what? There you go. So (laughs) the prophecy is about Jesus because what we read in the four gospels is language called the son of man. In fact, this was Jesus' primary way of self-identification was the Son of Man. And it's, it's just a theme. We're not going to be able to unpack it all today, but it was, it was really one of his favorite monikers for himself. And it's so important, really, in the whole of Scripture. Now, I would say that the Old Testament, I mean, Scripture is important, but there are parts of Scripture that are more important than others. 
And I don't want you to get that the wrong way. Everything's great. Everything's important. Everything's part of the story. But there, there are certain chunks of Scripture that are super important for understanding the whole arc of Scripture, okay? Genesis 1, Genesis 3, 12, and 15, huge. Those are important. Um, Exodus 12 and 19, 1 Samuel 8. Daniel 7 is easily within the top five. Because what it does is it explains some, something that God will be doing, okay, in response to all these empires that are set up against him. And so this, I mean, we see it in the life of Jesus. Jesus is on trial in front of Caiaphas, the high priest. And Caiaphas, the high priest, and the other priests in the room, they're saying, are the rumors true? Are you claiming, are you claiming you are the Messiah? And Jesus responds with a quote straight out of Daniel 7. I am the one like the son of man. I mean, straight out of Daniel 7. And here's the thing about Dan the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel was so held in high esteem with the Jewish people of Jesus' day. I mean, it was the favorite go-to, I mean, one day there will be, right? Someone who is the appearing of God and is a human being who will come and destroy the beast. And that language and that hope was all in the people. But for the leaders of the Jewish people, this was blasphemy. This is why Jesus was put to death. Now watch what happens. Verse 15, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Verse 19, then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast which was different from all the others and most terrifying. And then he goes into a list of things. We're just going to skip a little bit uh, just for time's sake. Verse 23, he says, He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. We think this is a nod to the Roman Empire. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from the kingdom. So like I said, ten emperors starting with Julius Caesar. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High, oppress his holy people, and try to change the set times and the laws. And some of us, uh, some scholars believe this is... Uh, dialed into a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who came into Jerusalem and did some crazy stuff, but we'll get into that later. The holy people will de be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and a half a time. Uh, so this is uh, kind of unspecific language <laughs> um, that says a season of time set by God uh, with a beginning, a middle, and an end, okay? So uh, verse 26, it says, but the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to who? The holy people 
of the Most High, which is just mind-blowing language right here. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him, meaning everyone from least to greatest will bow to the knee, bow the knee to, G- to King Jesus. And then it says this. This is the great ending of Daniel. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. It's like, okay. Like, for years, he probably was just like, I'm not talking about this. <laughs> this is too nuts. So good. It's kind of like, how did you sleep last night, Daniel? You do not want to know. Why is Daniel deeply troubled? Sure, it was a kind of a nightmarish dream, right? But the first half was pretty bad. The second half was pretty good, right? It was like had some good stuff to it. I think he was pretty troubled because um, I think Daniel wanted it to happen right now. Like, I think Daniel wanted this all to get wrapped up now. Like, he was living in the middle of some of this atrocity, some of this terror, some of this beastly kingdom, uh, beastly empire work. And, And Daniel was just like, man, it would be really great if that whole part got wrapped up if the Son of Man came, if the whole thing was uh, dealt with and the beast destroyed. And really, in reality, it was a long way off. How many of you are like sick of winter and can't wait for your summer vacation? Anybody? Like, I don't know. Yeah, I'm pretty much done. I'm pretty much done with the cold. And I know there's the winter people here that are like, it's so beautiful. Listen. It's done. Like, we're done with it, okay? It's the end of February. Be done. And, and here's the thing. Like, you want, right? You want, you're like, I know this is coming. I know summertime. I know all that is coming. I just, I, I want to be there now. This is Daniel. Daniel's like, I can see it. I can taste it. But I want it to be done now. And the reality, it was a long ways off. And so this dream is about Daniel continuing to live in the shadow of empire, knowing that there's hope, right? Knowing that something's coming, someone is coming that is going to change the narrative. And empire is a major theme in Daniel. Empire is a major theme all throughout scripture. It starts with Pharaoh. It starts with, you know, and ends with the Roman Empire. My point is that empire, the idea of empire, is something that I believe you and I, as followers of Jesus, must have the courage. We've got to have the courage to wrestle with it in our time right now. Because unless we wrestle with what empire is, unless we understand what empire is, we're never going to really understand what it looks like to live as kingdom people. And unless we learn how to do that, we're going to be really kind of spinning our wheels. So what do I mean about empire? Scholars list four different characteristics of what it takes to become an empire. The first one is military, meaning for an empire to be powerful, it has to have a military. It has to have a military, one of, if not the best in the world. It has to be better at everything. In fact, its people have to trust the military for the ability for them to be safe and secure. So 
An empire has to have a military. An empire has to have economics, meaning an empire has to have the driving, uh, a driving economy, driving, in a sense, the world economy. An empire is political, meaning even if you don't trust in the empire's leader, you trust in the empire's system of governance. Okay? So it's got to have a political thing to it. And an empire has to have an ideology. An ideology is a narrative or a story that tells you about the good life, meaning this is what it means to be free or fulfilled or satisfied or... Does that make sense? Winston Churchill once said that empires of the future, and he's writing this obviously during World War II, will be empires of the mind, meaning that empires of the future are are not necessarily empires that are going to conquer by violence and, 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 and you know, military conquest, but they're going to seduce you by the allure okay, of an ideology, meaning the internet and the convenience and all the things that we get from the internet is actually more powerful than an army. It has more effect than an army. So for an empire to rule over a large area, it has to get its people to not only conform and buy into its narrative of how it lives, but also to be cool with the control that the government gives them, meaning pay your taxes, don't speed, you know, vote, you know, stuff like that, which you guys probably, I know you guys don't speed. <laughs> but an empire is meant to control you and conform you to think like the empire, right? So to fit into the image of the empire. Last week, we talked about this a bit. We talked about this idea that um, sometimes uh, living uh, in allegiance to Jesus has this effect on the people around us. John Tyson wrote this. I just caught this quote this week. It's really good. He says, if you want to follow Jesus, prepare to be misunderstood, our culture has no place for people who don't swallow cultural narratives whole. So true, isn't it? And so, you know, we think back and we go, oh, there's empires. And we think back to the empire of Nazi Germany, right? And I mean, that was just a few, a couple generations ago. And we're just like, how could that happen? Like, how could a whole nation get behind the idea of extermination of a whole people group? Now, I know not everybody did, but what I'm telling you is that, like, how does that happen, right? Like, how does that go about happening? It doesn't happen over time. I mean, you know, in, a, in a snap of a finger, it happens over time. So you put together a whole bunch of different things like World War I, bad economics, workers' rights, progressive, like a bad progressive theology. Then you have the rise of a, of a leader, uh, a Hitler, like a, coming out of the sea, like a beast. And there's like this tipping point politically and economically and ideologically, and then the military gets behind it, and then that happens. The reality is you and I are all formed by empire. We're all formed by it. And, and if you were here last fall when we talked about formation, the idea is this. You and I are all being formed, like purposefully or, or kind of, you know, under the surface by everything going on in our world. We're being formed. And so... The, the key is, how are you intentionally being formed into what Jesus wants you to become versus uh, how the world, how our culture, how our empire is forming you, that idea. 
And so that, I'm just saying we're all being formed. And that's why it's really important for us to understand and recognize that there is an empire at work so that we can be formed by the kingdom of God, right? The kingdom of God is a wholly different thing. The kingdom of God is something that's going to last forever where we will be able to rule and reign with Jesus in, in the final outcome, right? But many of us are just, we're formed by empire. So quick four thoughts on empire, okay, before we land the plane. Because I think it's really important for us. The first one is this. America is an empire. I don't know if you noticed but let's like run it through the grid. And, and some of you are like, wait a second, you're gonna bash America. No, just hold on. America is an empire, um, military. Uh, I grew up in the 80s with Ronald Reagan as the president and, and every movie out was the Russians, right? Like the Russians were coming and I mean, Red Dawn, come on, right? I mean, Wolverine, come on, anybody? Nobody? All right. So, and so we were all afraid of the Russians. And, and the whole moniker during the 80s was uh, three words, peace through strength. Do you remember those words? Like, let's build our military as big as we can, and we'll have peace. Now, on, on yeah, we didn't shoot nukes at each other, okay? But the reality is, is we, ha- we built this, this huge military Economics, uh, America, I don't know if you knew this, but I mean, if you're new to the, the whole world scene, we have more wealth than any empire in the history of the world. Back in 1969, actually, economic, ec- economists actually nailed 1969 as the zenith of our economic power. Um, I don't know how they did this. They did it with math. Here's the thing. 40%, they believe at that moment in history, America was 40% of the world's economy. Post-World War II, uh, we are building everything and anything everywhere. Uh, it was really, I read this thing the other day that um, I think it was in the 70s, 70s or 80s, a politician from America actually went over to Russia and in the square, like t- some square in Moscow, they set up what a typical American kitchen looked like. Like appliances and everything, like a fridge and a this and a that. And, and said, this is what average Americans have. And people would come from Russia, they would, they would come and tour this little mini kitchen and be like, you guys are, cr- no way. There's no way. This is like what a king has. This is like what a czar has. And uh, it's pretty interesting. Politics. Politics in the West, um, <laughs> it sucks, right? So here's the thing, like, politics is like a religion now. I mean, it is a religion. It is an identity. It is borderline messianic in our culture. And I'm not saying one particular party or the other. I'm saying both of them are. It's like a messianic thing. We've got to get our person or the whole world's gonna spin off its axis and we're all gonna die. That's pretty much how politics works. Ideology, the American dream. It's, it's this idea of like the seedbed for individualism, consumerism, and we get so pulled in that direction, right? We just get so swept up into it. So America's an empire. It has 
the military, the economics, the politics, and the ideology. We have it all here. Now, there's a guy named Mark Sayers, who's actually a cultural uh, guru. He's, he's actually in, in Australia, so he can actually you know, peek into the Western culture and he can actually have an opinion because um, he's from the outside looking in. And he says, there's seven really huge uh, pieces to uh, what it looks like to have uh, belief in Western culture. And I, this is kind of nerdy, but I think it's really important for us. I, I kind of debated on whether to put these on the screen, but I think it's really important for us to understand. Like these are common, widely held beliefs, ideological beliefs that we have living in the West. Here's the first one, okay? The highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. Two, traditions, religions, received wisdom, regulations, and social ties that restrict individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression must be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. Does this sound familiar at all? Three, the world will inevitably improve as the scope of individual freedom grows. Technology, in particular, the internet, will motor this progression towards utopia. Four, the primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. Any deviation from the ethic of, ethic of tolerance is dangerous and must not be tolerated. Therefore, social justice is, is less about economic or class inequality and more about issues of equality relating to individual identity, self-expression, and personal autonomy. Five, humans are inherently, inherently good. Contra Genesis 3. Six, large-scale large scale structures and institutions are suspicious at best and evil at worst, i.e. the church. Seven, forms of external authority are rejected and personal authenticity is lauded. Be true to yourself, right? This is, this is like, these are widely held beliefs across every socioeconomic, every religious, every political background in our country. So these aren't just liberal beliefs or conservative beliefs or, you know, people that have money. No, this is across millions of people in our culture. And these ideas form the dominant framework for navigating life. Mark Sayers goes on for this. I got another quote here. I'm sorry, everybody. Mary's sick of me already back there in the back. He says, these beliefs have not so much been argued as assumed. They are not enforced, rather they are imbibed. We do not receive them as intellectual propaganda that has to be obeyed. Instead, they are communicated to us at almost a subconscious level through the high priests of advertising and the techno-prophets of Silicon Valley. This new cultural mood becomes all the more powerful as the good is reduced to mere individual happiness. We can no longer see beyond ourselves to learn from history or to be concerned about the future. The result is an amnesia about everything except the immediate, the instant, the now, and the me. The future is not left to God, but rather kind of an implicit fuzzy faith that things will simply move to get better. Somehow society will get better. My life will get better. 
This is ideology at a religious level, okay? This is kind of where we're at as a culture. The second thing you need to know is, yes, America is, is an empire, but empires are a mixed bag of good and evil, right? Some empires are better than others. Like, I'd rather be this empire than, say, Nazi Germany or, or Mao or whatever. You know, there's, you can list a whole bunch of, you can rank them, right? But there are some good things, too. And there's a lot to love about our country. And, and, and there's just a lot of things that we can say that are good. But at the same time, we have, understand that we have dual citizenship. If you follow Jesus, you are a citizen of, of heaven, or as what we call the kingdom, and you are a citizen of this country. So how do you leverage your dual citizenship uh, to, to bear witness to the good that's happening around us, and yet at the same time, witness of a better reality that is the kingdom of God? That's the art, right? Because here's the thing, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this, and uh, it's hard to see the teeth of the beast when we're riding safe and comfortably on its back. Does that make sense? Like, there is something hard to see about being a part or living in an empire. And so I'm just throwing it out there. That might make you mad. Uh, there's donuts later, so maybe that'll make you happy. Third point is this. All empires come and go. All of them come and go. According to Daniel 7, they will all come and they will all go. And conquering, there's a conquering chain that we saw, Babylon, Medo-Persia, uh, on and on and on, uh, Greece, Rome. And then and when you, you, they're all gone, right? There's just some pieces and I mean, literally everything of Babylon is gone, but we have some remnants of Medo-Persia with Iran, and, and we have some things going for all these other ones. But even in America, only a few hundred years in, and depending on how cynical you are, you know, you might have different versions of how this, how much longer it has. And God, here's the thing, God is so sovereign over all of it. And, and I don't play with that word lightly. Okay, the word, when I say sovereign, when I say that God is sovereign, I do not mean that God is in control of every detail of life. That is something called meticulous sovereignty, and I don't, I don't, I don't ascribe to that, okay? But what I'm saying is, is that God is involved, that God's hand is working, that God had a God's hand is sometimes against humans and for human beings, depending on how it moves the story towards the kingdom of God. Okay. What I'm not saying is it's all going to hell, so let's just hang on. You know, let's just, you know, hide out and, and see what and just wait to see what happens. That's not what I'm saying either. I'm just saying recognize that empires do come and go. Even the one that we're living in. Uh, this is another big quote. I'm gonna skip it. You guys seem like you're tired of quotes. Uh, all right, let's get I'm show of hands. All right, fine. It's a long quote, it's really good. It's a guy named Jonathan Sachs. He's the one that came up with that idea of creative minority that we've been talking about. He says this, the West has already gone far down the road of abandoning the Judeo-Christian principles of the sanctity of life and the sacred covenant of marriage. Instead, it places its faith in a series of institutions, none of which can bear the weight of moral guidance. Science, technology, the state, the market, 
and ev evolutionary biology. And he lists, he goes through them here. He says, science tells us what is, not what ought to be. Technology gives us power, but cannot tell us how to use that power. The liberal democratic state, and by the way, he means that in the terms of, of anything uh, as far as democracy post the Enlightenment. He says that as a matter of principle, uh, where am I at, does not make moral judgments. The market gives us choices, but does not tell us which choices to make. Evolutionary biology tells us why we have certain desires, but not which desires we should seek to satisfy and which not. It does not explain the unique human ability to make second-order evaluations. Remember, we talked about this a number of months ago. It said, meaning the things that you do not want to do. The results lie all around us. The collapse of marriage, the fracturing of the family, the fraying of the social bond, the partisanship of politics at a time when national interest demands something larger, the loss of trust in public institutions, the buildup of debt whose burden will fall on future generations, and the failure of a shared morality to lift us out of the morass of individualism, hedonism, consumerism, and relativism. We know these things, yet we seem collectively powerless to move beyond them. And listen to this. We have reached the stage described by Livy, who's an historian, uh, Roman historian, in his description of ancient Rome. He says, where we can bear neither our vices nor their cure. This is heavy. And I get you're like, and I just wanted to come to church <laughs> and like feel good and then leave. <laughs> listen, that last line is very haunting. This idea of like, okay, we can't, we can't tolerate our vices nor the cure for their vices. Uh, but God is calling all of us who call himself, call him Lord and have allegiance to Jesus to something called redemptive participation. Meaning we cannot pull back as people and say, you know what, we're just gonna cloister ourselves off here in the corner. Um, we've got actually a job to do to engage culture. And, and my fourth and final point is this. In the end, God will judge all the empires and set up his kingdom on earth. In the meantime, we are called to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. That's what we're called to do. And the, and the vision that Daniel has is one of, yes, all this is going to happen. Empires will come and go. They will rise and they will fall and they will devour and they will do all these things. But one day... There will be one called the, uh, like the son of man who will come. And we know that to be Jesus. And we know that this, um, uh, uh, this beautiful picture of Jesus showing up totally different, totally unique than to all the other messianic ideas the Jewish people had. They thought Jesus was going to show up on a horse and a military conquest and be an empire fighting other empires. And Jesus came completely different. Jesus comes as one who calls out the good, right? Calls out the good and, and, and critiques the bad. Jesus lives as a human being, but yet he is, he is, he's, he's, his agenda is run by his father's will. He, he comes as, as almost like a philosopher who, who, who puts the, the, the weight of, of following God on his life. Um, and, and he trains us, he shows us the way to do it. So Jesus comes not just to rescue you and me, although he does that, and Jesus comes and he rescues us from the empire of sin that really has a hold on our lives. He also comes 
right? To make things right. To, to push against the empires of this world as well. And one day, he will complete that. And until that time, you and me are, were, were invited into more than just taking a, a ticket to heaven, putting it in our wallet, and going about our day. We're actually invited into something way bigger. We're invited to be artists. Artists who critique the bad, and celebrate the good. That's what artists do. We're actually invited to be citizens, to live our dual citizenship, right? And we're invited to be philosopher types. We're actually invited to discern what is good, beautiful, and true, and to bring the wisdom of God to bear on our lives. And when we do that, when we do that, and we do that as a community, we do that as individuals, as families, and we do that at pockets of, of the kingdom all over, we actually get to be against we actually need to be for the kingdom, against the empire in all of its forms. And here's the beauty of it. It's messy, but it has so much power in our culture. And we're going to get into that in the next days. Uh, next Sunday, we talk about hope out of, out of Daniel 12. And then the final week of our series, we're going to be able to talk about what does this all mean? How does this all shape up? So this morning... We're going to take communion together. And as, as kind of an act of kingdom against the empire, I'm going to invite Dan up to lead us into communion.